So this morning's text is mainly dealing with the dreaded topic of, drumroll please, evangelism. The topic of evangelism. Now what is evangelism? Evangelism is a word that means sharing your faith with non-Christians and inviting those non-Christians to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So evangelism goes by different names. It's sharing your faith. Sometimes it's witnessing. Um, But again, it's the idea that we are sharing the, the Christian faith and specifically sharing the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ. We're sharing that news with people who are not yet Christians. We're telling them that good news and we are asking or inviting them to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, surveys indicate that the vast majority of Christians rarely, if ever, engage in evangelism. I won't do this in our church, but if I were to take a survey and just say, hey, shoot up your hand if in the last three months you have personally shared your faith with somebody that is not yet a Christian, I wonder how many hands would go up. If our church is like the average church in America, the answer to that is not very many. And, and, and there's reasons for that, of course, and, and these reasons are understandable. For some people, they don't want to share their faith with a non-Christian because they're worried about what to say. They feel like they don't know what they should say or exactly how to share their faith. For other people, they don't want to share their faith with non-Christians because they're a little bit afraid. Like, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What do I do? I don't want to just freeze in the moment. And so a lot of Christians are very, very hesitant to share their faith. And again, what that means is that more often than not, they just don't. Now, at the same time, what's so ironic is that if I were to take a survey in this church or in most churches in America today and ask, how many of you think that evangelism is a critical, important part of the Christian life, almost every hand would shoot up. Right? Jesus himself, in the Great Commission, tells us that our responsibility is in part to do the work of evangelism. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark's version of the Great Commission puts these words on Jesus' lips. This is Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So Jesus is telling us, hey, if you're my disciple, if you're my follower... You have a mission. I want you to go and preach the gospel to all of creation. Matthew's version, of course, says, make disciples of every nation. And so we have this mandate, we have this responsibility to go and tell people this great news about Jesus. And it's an urgent call. The Apostle Paul reminds us of how important it is for us to do this work in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, or 10, rather, verses 13 and 14, listen to what Paul writes. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What an amazing announcement. Paul says, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're five years old today or you're 55 years old. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So that's awesome. That's exciting. That's a message for the entire world. Everybody has equal opportunity to be saved, to know God, to have their sins forgiven, and to have new life in Jesus. But then Paul goes on to say this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Paul says, listen, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a wonderful promise that he just wants to cast over the entire world. And then he says, but hold on, let's stop and think about this. How could a person ever call on the Lord if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him if somebody doesn't come and share and tell them the message? And so preaching the gospel family is so unbelievably important. It is a critical part of the Christian life. It's a wonderful responsibility that you and I have. Now, Paul began the letter to the Colossians, rejoicing over the fact that the gospel was spreading like wildfire in the Mediterranean world. He writes this in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is kind of the end of verse 5 and then verse 6. He writes, the gospel which has come to you As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul sees the gospel spreading throughout the Mediterranean world and it's just just swallowing people up, including the Colossians, these people that he's writing this letter to. They had been reached with the preaching of the gospel through a, a man named Epaphras, They had responded in faith. This church was formed. And now at the end of the letter, Paul is coming back to the theme of evangelism because Paul is longing that that word, kind of gospel spreading, that that would keep on happening. He wants more and more people to be caught up in this tsunami of the gospel. He is not content with anybody perishing and going to hell. He has the greatest news in the world. And he's going to make sure that that news is spread far and wide. I love Paul because he was an insatiable evangelist. I mean, here's a guy who when we all get to heaven, and not that we're going to tally up scores, but if we did it that way, here's a guy who would kind of be ranking at the top for the amount of conversions that he was responsible for. Here's a guy who planted so many churches, He preached the gospel everywhere he went, and he saw people getting saved. And you know what? He never, ever took his foot off the gas pedal. As long as there were people on planet Earth who did not declare, Jesus is my Lord, Paul was going to keep preaching. Paul was going to keep reaching with this good news. Paul was going to travel far and wide to tell more and more people about Jesus. He says this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul believed this with all of his heart. Through the preaching of the gospel, the power of God is on display because that message saves people. God uses our preaching to actually bring people into relationship with himself. And so Paul... He believed time is short, heaven and hell are very real, and I have the greatest news the world has ever heard. 
Now, it's easy for us as Christians to just sort of get caught up in our lives and the things that we have got going on. To just become totally inwardly focused. We're thinking about our lives. We're thinking about our families. We're thinking about our work. We're thinking about our church. And sometimes we can just lose sight of the world around us. People who are not yet Christians. And the Apostle Paul did not want that to happen to these Colossians. If you've been with us in our series through Colossians, the last chapter Paul has spent just unpacking Uh, The ways that, if you're in relationship with Jesus, the ways that that would transform your life. And Paul has explained that that transforms everything. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about how that would reshape your marriage, how it would impact the way that you interact with your children, how it would impact your work. And so Paul's been really focusing in on the way the gospel impacts us as Christians. But now Paul is like, I don't want you to just stay in that place where you're just thinking about yourselves. You're only looking inwardly in the church. So he wants to turn the attention of the Colossians and yours and mine today back on our mission. Because we have a mission. In verses 2 and 4, or 2 through 4 rather, Paul begins by addressing the topic of prayer. He wants to instruct these Christians in their prayer lives. And then in verses 5 and 6, he's going to directly instruct them in their evangelism, their sharing of the gospel. So let's look at what Paul writes here. In verse 2, Paul says this of chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So Paul here is instructing them in their prayer life in general. And the first thing that he calls them to is steadfast prayer. He calls them to steadfast prayer. He writes, continue steadfastly in prayer. So what Paul is calling Christians to is a life of ongoing, continual, daily, maybe even hour by hour prayer. A life where you are just in vital union with God. You're connected to God throughout the day and you speak to God constantly. Prayer is not an occasional feature of the Christian life. Something we do once a week or once a month or when there's an emergency. Prayer is a habitual practice in the Christian life. We ought to be steadfast in our prayer, continuing in steadfastness. We should, according to Luke 18.1, always pray and not lose heart. We should, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Again, as Christians, the idea is that we should be people of prayer. Praying constantly. And this was Paul's heart for these Colossians. That they would be a prayerful people. And so family, I would ask you this morning, would you describe your prayer life as a steadfast prayer life? That, That you would say, you know what, my prayer life is consistent and ongoing and constant. I find myself talking to the Lord about anything and everything. I would ask you this, what rhythms do you have in place in your life to help foster a steadfast prayer life? Most Christians don't just kind of accidentally fall into a devoted prayer life. If any of you have tried to be prayerful, you'll acknowledge that prayer is work. It's discipline. It takes effort to 
slow ourselves down and pause from all the other things that we're doing and say, Lord, I want to be present with you and bring my heart and my life before you. And so it's important for us to create rhythms of prayer in our day, our week, our month. So first he calls these Christians and he calls us to steadfast prayer. Notice secondly, he calls us to watchful prayer. He says being watchful in it. Now what does that mean? Well, the word watchful means to stay awake or to keep alert. Some of us need to be watchful during the preaching of God's word because we're tired and the heater's on, and we're getting very comfortable. But the idea is stay awake, to keep alert, to be watchful. Think of a soldier who's on watch. What do we mean by that? Well, if you're on watch, that means that the rest of the soldiers are sleeping, and you're awake, and you're watching out for the enemy to make sure that they don't come and overwhelm your unit. So you're alert. You're trying to stay focused. You're trying to fight against the temptation to fall asleep. You are on watch. And Paul thinks that there's a watchfulness that's required in the Christian prayer life. That we need to be alert, that we need to be paying attention, not dozing off to sleep spiritually. Now, this this idea, this word of being watchful or staying alert is used in context in the New Testament, in the context of the second coming of Jesus. That as Christians, we should be watchful or alert in regards to the return of Jesus. We see in Matthew 24, 42, this very idea. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake or be watchful, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, to be clear, when the New Testament is calling for us to be watchful or alert in regards to the second coming of the Lord, the New Testament is not saying that we should be just standing there watching for the second coming of the Lord. Like all day long, we just stare and say, is today the day? And don't do anything else. The idea is that we should be watchful of the way that we are living because we're aware that the Lord could return at any moment. So it's a watchfulness or an alertness about the life that we're living. Am I really on mission today? Am I living for Jesus? Am I pursuing holiness? Am I living for the kingdom because my king could return at any moment? And when he returns, I really want him to find me being faithful and being busy in his work. This word's also used in the context of temptation. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Of course, 1 Peter 5, 8. Famously, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so in our prayer life, Paul is saying, listen, we need to be watchful. We need to be alert to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, that Christ is alive. He's our king and he's coming back. And we need to be alert to the temptations that want to bring us out from under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have to be alert. We have to pay attention. Third, Paul writes that we need to be thankful in our prayer lives. He says, with thanksgiving. Now, this is a typical feature of Pauline instruction when he talks about prayer. Paul always wants us to be thankful, to live with gratitude. He says as much in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, give thanks in All 
circumstances. So he's calling us to a life of gratitude, being thankful all the time. So let's put this together. In our prayers, Paul's instruction is this. In our prayer lives, family, we should be constant, we should be alert, and we should be filled with gratitude for all that Christ has done and all that Christ will do for us. This is a great way to think about our prayer lives. And Paul is calling us to this sort of prayer. You cannot be a Christian of consequence until you become a man or woman of prayer. Let me say that just one more time. You cannot become a Christian of consequence until you become a man or woman of prayer. And so family, we need to be a prayerful people. We need to be abiding in Christ. We need to be seeking the heart of God and submitting our own hearts to the will of God daily. Verse 3, let's continue. Paul writes, at the same time, Pray also for us. So he's still talking about prayer. Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So now Paul says, listen, guys, as you pray, can you include me in your prayers too? And what's so significant here? is that Paul does not say, can you include me in your prayers and pray for my needs? Which would have been totally legitimate, because as we just saw, he's in prison. He had a lot of needs. He was in a tough spot. But he says, would you pray for me? Not that I can get out of prison. Not that I could have better food rations. Not that I could have some other things smoothed out in my life. Would you pray for me specifically that my evangelism might be effective? That God would do what? That God, he says, would open a door to us for the word. So here's the fourth feature of the prayer life that Paul is asking the Colossians to participate in. Now he's calling them to evangelistic prayer. That they would become a people who are not just praying for their own souls, not just praying for their own spiritual growth, not just praying for other Christians, but saying we also have a heart in our prayer life for people who don't know Jesus yet. And we make this a regular feature of the way that we pray. This expression that God may open to us a door for the word carries the idea that that God needs to open doors of opportunity for the very word of God to find a place in people's lives. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, that that this idea is that God would open a door that allows the word of God into the hearts, minds, and lives of individuals and communities. That God would open a door for the word. Now we can call this pre-evangelism. And I think we need to, as Christians, get really good at thinking about pre-evangelism. Because when we think about evangelism, most of us are just thinking about the actual interaction between us and another person, which is significant and we'll talk about in a moment. But we don't give a ton of thought, I don't think, to pre-evangelism. 
But pre-evangelism, again, is this idea that that we are coming in prayer before we ever have a conversation with a non-Christian. We are coming in prayer and we are begging for God to do what only God can do. And we're saying, God, would you open up a door of opportunity? Would you create a space, a, a situation? Would you bring a person into my life who's not a Christian that I can share the good news with? And secondarily, God, would you open their heart so that when I do share the good news of the gospel with them, they'll receive what's said. In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, the apostle Paul and his missionary team are out preaching the gospel. And we read about this woman named Lydia. And I want you to see exactly what the book of Acts says about her experience of hearing the gospel preached. This is Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Here's the key. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's significant. It wasn't, the effectiveness of reaching Lydia was not just what Paul said. Infinitely more significant in her being reached with the gospel was what God did as Paul said what Paul said. That the Lord is the one who actually opened her heart to receive what Paul spoke. And I wonder how much of our evangelism dies right here. How much of our evangelism is ineffective because the way that we approach evangelism is all about strategies and techniques and tools for communication rather than a commitment to praying and asking God to open people's hearts and to make them receptive to the good news of the gospel. Our prayers for evangelism are not just give me the right words to say, as important as that is. It is also, would you give them ears to hear? Would you give them eyes to see? Paul says that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Do you think that you can dress it up so wisely that non-Christians are going to accept it? God has to step in and intervene and give people eyes to see and ears to hear. And and there are people that have heard the gospel hundreds and hundreds of times, and it just went like this, boom, and bounced right off. But then something changes one day, because God gives them ears to hear, and now all of a sudden they hear that very same message, and it just hits them. Maybe that's your experience. In some senses, that was my experience. Raised in the church, the gospel bouncing off of me like I was Teflon all those years. And then at some point, the Lord opened my heart to receive that same message. The message did not change, but the soil of my heart did. And God does that. And so you have family members, you have friends, you have co-workers, you have people that you know that are far from Jesus right now. Get on your knees and say, Lord, open their heart. Make a door. Make a way where there is no way right now. Save them for your glory and for their good. Would you do that, Lord? So Paul here is saying, not only is Paul committed to pre-evangelism, he's saying, would you join me in this? Would all you Colossians join me in praying 
that God would make a way for the word to continue to spread, that he would open doors of opportunity, that he would open doors of people's hearts for the word of Christ, asking God to till up the soil of their hearts so that when he gets there, he can declare the mystery of Christ as he writes. And what does he mean, declare the mystery of Christ? Well, he's used that expression already a, a couple of times in Colossians. And so we know what he means. Here's Colossians 1.27. Paul wrote there, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He comes back to this idea of the mystery of, of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He writes that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the mystery of Christ is the good news of all that God has done for humanity in and through Jesus the Christ. Or to say it differently, the mystery of Christ is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus' work to save us and to bring us back to God. So Paul wants to keep preaching that message. And it's incredible that he tells them in the very next little part of this verse that it's for doing that, for preaching that gospel message that he's even in prison in the first place. He says, on account of which I am in prison. But Paul didn't say, you know what? This has not been working out very well for me. I've been preaching the gospel and, and it got me thrown into prison. So I'm, I'm going to give up on this and I'm going to start doing something else. I'm going to sell insurance now. He doesn't do that. He's sitting in a dungeon and he's saying, I want to do more of this. I want more opportunity to preach the gospel. What courage, what boldness. I find it so convicting. I, I, to be honest with you, I find in my own heart a, a desire to avoid just having awkwardness with people by bringing up the gospel. Or having somebody not like me because I wanted to share about Jesus with them. Or I find in my own heart an, an unwillingness to even just embrace ridicule. And Paul's like, bring it on. I'll go to jail for this thing. And ultimately, as you know, Paul says, I'll go to death for this thing. And he does. I love that. This is a man who believed this with every ounce of his being. Again, heaven and hell are real. Time is short. And Paul's saying, I have the solution. And his name is Jesus. And he wanted to get that out. The last little request that he asks in their prayer is that he would make it clear. Now that word clear, it means to make something manifest or to reveal something. So basically, Paul's just saying, would you just pray that I'm really skillful in communicating the gospel? That, that I would use words and phrases with people that they understand, that they get it, that I wouldn't get in the way and muddy up the message at all. I want to just reveal this truth. I want to make it manifest or make it known. So pray for me that I would be effective at, at presenting or sharing the good news of the gospel. Let's look again at verses 5 and 6 now. He's going to shift gears a little bit here. He's no longer talking about prayer. Now he's giving them direct instruction on their own evangelistic efforts. He says this, 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So in verses 2 through 4, he was instructing the church and us on prayer. But now he's directly instructing us on evangelism. On the way that we interact with outsiders. Now that's a word that Paul and the rest of the New Testament use from time to time to just be referring to non-Christians. People who are outside of the community of faith. And so Paul now is saying, I want you to live a certain way in regards to outsiders, to non-believers. And how does he want us to live? He says, you need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We need to be, as Christians, if we want to be effective in evangelism, and if we want to give Jesus a good name, which he deserves, we need to be thoughtful and we need to be wise in our relationships with non-Christians. Now, many Christians make mistakes here. But this instruction here, that, that we would walk in wisdom toward outsiders, it helps us to avoid two dangerous extremes. On one extreme end that we need to avoid, some Christians take the approach of total avoidance toward non-Christians. This is the person who wants to live in a Christian bubble. This is the person who flees California for Idaho. I'm saying that because a dear friend of mine who moved to Idaho last year is here today. She went for good reason. Um, but no, this is the person, all joking aside, who wants to live in a Christian bubble, okay? They don't want to interact with non-believers. Let me actually say this about that friend. She's an evangelist, but um, they, they don't want to live in that space. They're so comfortable just having their Christian family, their Christian friends, their Christian church, their Christian business, their Christian sports leagues. They just don't want anything to do with the world because the world is bad, Stay away, total avoidance. The other mistake on the other opposite end of the spectrum, instead of total avoidance of the world, is total immersion. This is the person who immerses their entire life into relationships with the world, and they begin to embody the very same values and beliefs and ethics of the world. And they call themselves a Christian, but then they just go live like the world. They're, they're caught up in all the same things as the world. If we fall into either of these, total avoidance, total immersion, guess what? We will not reach anyone. We'll just totally fail at the mission that God has given to us to make disciples. Christians are not to withdraw from non-Christians, we need to resist their influence, yes, but we need to stay connected with them and influence them with the good news of the gospel. Jesus puts it this way in John 17. He says that we as Christians are to be in the world, but we're not of the world. So he makes that distinction. We are interacting with non-Christians every day, and we should gladly embrace that role. And we should love non-Christians from the bottom of our heart and care for them and serve them, and bless them, and they should be our friends, and they are our neighbors, and they're your colleagues, and they're your schoolmates, and they're on your sports teams. So we're in the world, family. But Jesus says, but we're not of the world. 
We are of a, a, a different mold. Okay, we're living for the kingdom and we are living like Jesus. I've always found that, that illustration of this where you, you talk about the thermometer and the thermostat so helpful. A thermometer just adjusts itself to the temperature. It, it, to put it differently, it adjusts itself to the climate. So if you use a thermometer, it's going to change and tell you, okay, this is what the current climate is. A thermostat, though, actually adjusts the climate. You set the thermostat to what you want, which we could probably use dropping it a couple degrees in here this morning. Um, but you set it. So when we walked in here this morning, it was like in the 50s. And then you bump that thing up to about 68 and it changes the climate. That's what the Christian life looks like. We're, we're not to be thermometers. We don't just walk into every situation and become a chameleon and go, oh, okay, now I live like these people. Oh, now I adjust and I live like these people. Instead, Christians are supposed to have the, the, the way of Jesus as our ethic. And we're supposed to embody the life of Christ. And as we enter into these different spaces, we actually influence them. And we impact them and we bring change. And we adjust the climate of those relationships. The next expression that he uses is so helpful when we think about evangelism. He calls us to make the best use of the time. Now, an alternative translation to this expression is make the most of every opportunity. And that's what the Greek is really getting at here. The idea that we make the most of every single opportunity. Paul was an opportunistic evangelist, always looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. He was strategic. He was intentional. He was focused. And I love that mentality when it comes to evangelism. Now, some render this phrase, buying up, buying up. So the idea in the Greek then would be that, that we need to buy up these opportunities like a bargain, like a bargain. So we're looking for opportunities to share our faith like a bargain shopper. Okay, how does a bargain shopper do their shopping? They're walking through aisles and aisles of inventory and they're saying, where can I find the best deal? Where can I make my money go the furthest? Oh, look at that. That's a bargain. I'm taking that. And that's the idea here, making the most of every opportunity. That we're looking, we're serving, we're analyzing our relationships, the circumstances we find ourselves in. And we're saying, is this a great opportunity that is presented in front of me? And if it is, I'm going to snatch it up like it's a bargain. I'm not going to let it pass me by. I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to tell this person about Jesus. I just love the intentionality here. I love the focus on evangelism. Part of walking in wisdom toward non-Christians is discerning when opportunities for evangelism present themselves. Now, for me... I'll just share with you how, how these opportunities present themselves most often. It's when people ask me, what do you do for a living? That's a loaded question when you ask a pastor that. Because we're going like from zero to 100 into spiritual conversations. Well, I pastor a church. And you're going to get some really mixed reactions to that. 
Th th my favorite, though, has been several times that I've been on flights, and I'll sit down next to a guy, and the flight hasn't even taken off yet. And I usually let them start it, and 99% of guys will start it, but it's like, hey, what's going on? What do you got going on in Dallas or wherever you're headed? And then it's like, what do you do for work? And I just, I just, I start laughing inside. I'm like, this is going to be so interesting. I say, well, I'm a pastor. And the reaction to that on a plane is, is on one end of the spectrum, if they're a Christian, they're fired up. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, where's the emergency exit? Can I jump out the door? How many hours? Why couldn't I just have kept my AirPods in and kept my mouth shut? Why did I ask him that question? But that's how it works for me. And, and I know that and I'm prepared. The other question is people will say, how long have you lived in Santa Barbara? And I'll tell them, four years. That's always followed up by what brought you to Santa Barbara? Boom, we're right back into a spiritual conversation. And I know that and I prepare myself and I think about that and I get excited. I look at that as an opportunity that this is going to be a spiritual conversation. I'm not going to be pushy. I'm not going to be weird, but I am going to tell them and then I'm going to sit and engage the reaction. And if it seems like there's an opportunity to keep pushing the door open a little further, I want to take it and just keep exploring spiritual things with this person. Now, of course, this idea of finding the opportune moments for evangelism, it implies that there are moments that are inopportune for, for evangelism. And part of walking in wisdom toward outsiders is not just knowing when to be evangelistic, but when this isn't a great time for that. And I think that some Christians, uh, especially those who are very zealous for evangelism, they can make mistakes there. Uh, very early on in my Christian life, I, I worked at a restaurant. Uh, this is how I got through college. I was working at a restaurant. And there were a couple of us who got saved within about a six-month span. And there was one guy who became a good friend of mine. And he, he, he grew up, he was not a Christian, not raised in a Christian family. And he was very, very far from the Lord, living just a very, very wicked life, no regard for Jesus. And then Jesus rescued him and got a hold of him. And he did a complete 180, which was awesome. And part of that was be, that he became just a passionate evangelist. He wanted to tell every single person, every opportunity that he got about Jesus, which is a good impulse but we need to be wise. And I remember that at work, we'd all be on the clock. We're working for the boss. We should be doing our job. And he would just stop at like the drink fountain and he would like talk to another server about their soul and what's going to happen after they die and started flustering other employees and impacting work. And I remember our manager, who was a really nice guy, but not a Christian, he called a meeting for the Jesus squad or whatever he called us. Hey, come here, you guys. I love you guys. You guys are great. You're wonderful. But listen, I need to tell you something. When you're on the clock in my restaurant, please do not try to convert other people to Christianity. You're distracting them, and some people have complained about it. And it was a great lesson, a great warning. Not every opportunity is an opportunity for evangelism. You might say, well, how do I know the difference? The answer is it takes wisdom, like Paul talks about here. We need to exercise wisdom. So I want to encourage every single one of you this morning Give thought to evangelism in your life. Just sit and take inventory of the relationships that you have, the opportunities that you have available to you right now with non-Christians. Where might you have those already? And if you don't have a lot of those, how might you create opportunities for yourself to share your faith? Um, for me, as a pastor, guess what? I don't spend a lot of time with non-Christians. 
I work literally in a church with Christians. I don't have very many opportunities to preach the gospel to my staff. There's a couple opportunities with Ryan from time to time where we're trying to get him saved. But other than that, it's kind of like we're all Christians here, right? Most of my meetings throughout the week are with believers or pastors of other churches. But, but the area that I really try to say, well, how can I create some opportunities? It's, it's through coaching youth sports. My boys love sports. Our family, we love sports. I love to coach and get involved there. And guess what? Every season when I coach, I have access to 12 families that I get to love and pour into and bless and serve their children. And over the years, so many spiritual conversations have just come up through coaching, not forced, not having to, to make it happen, but it ends up coming out in that, that arena. And so I would ask you, like, again, think about it. How, where are these opportunities? Or if they're not there, how can you do things that give you access to non-believers that you can love and minister to? And if God opens a door for the word, step through it and share the gospel. Okay, so he's talked about seizing these opportunities of evangelism. But what about the way we do it when we seize the opportunity? Well, that's what verse 6 is about in closing. He says this, let your speech always be gracious. If you're so inclined to write in your Bible, just underline or circle or highlight that word always. What a word for some quote-unquote evangelists. He says that our speech, when we are sharing the good news, must always, zero exceptions, always be gracious. Family, when we share Jesus with people, we are not angry, we are not combative, we are not rude, we're not cutting, we're not demeaning. Our speech must always be gracious. Think about it like this. According to Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. How in the world would we ever imagine that the rudeness of man could help on that mission? It is the kindness of God that draws a person to repentance. So we're not angry with non-Christians. We don't hate non-Christians. We don't think that we're better than non-Christians. We don't try to demean or belittle non-Christians. And guys, if there's anybody in this room here this morning that considers yourself a Christian, and as you look at your heart, you genuinely sense, I do hate non-Christians, or I don't like non-Christians, or I am better than non-Christians. Let me just say this to you that you need to be concerned about your soul and not theirs. Because that's not the way of Jesus, and it's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus, you'll read over and over again in the Gospels, he was moved with compassion when he looked out at the crowds. And Jesus cared for a religious elite like Nicodemus, and he cared for social outcasts like the woman at the well or that tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jesus was moved with compassion. He was filled, we read in the scriptures, with grace and with truth. And so our heart toward non-Christians and our verbal communication is gracious, it is kind, it is loving. Our heart is to pray for them, serve them, and share the gospel with them. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. He says our speech also needs to be seasoned with salt. 
Now, in our day and age, if a person's salty, we kind of mean by that that they're like bitter, right? But in the ancient world, if a person was salty in their speech, it carried the idea that their speech was interesting or you could say flavorful. It's maybe more how we use the word spicy today. A person's spicy. It's like some flavor, some zest there. So a person who had salty speech in the ancient world, again, was a person with interesting speech or it had a particular flavor to it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls Christians the salt of the earth. And he explains that our lives ought to have a certain flavor to it. And now Paul says in our evangelistic speech, there ought to be a certain flavor there as well. Our speech should be of interest to the person who we're sharing with. Our speech should relate to them. Our speech is not to be boring. It shouldn't be some pre-rehearsed script that kind of sounds like we're just telemarketers. Okay, it's, it's tailor-fit to that individual, which leads to Paul's last idea where he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice that we share with different people different ways. That there's a way to answer this person that's different than the way to answer that person. Not all non-believers are coming from the same place. It's been said if you've, if you've met one non-Christian, you've met one non-Christian. People are unique. People, non-Christians are not some monolithic group out there that we can just lump together. Not all non-Christians are dealing with the same issues. They're not all wondering the same questions. They're not all wrestling with the same doubts. They're not all battling the same temptations. And this is one of the problems with kind of like cookie-cutter evangelism tools, where it's like just use this kind of prepackaged script, and that's how you're going to get effective, and that's how you're going to win people to Jesus. No, people are unique. And guess what, family? We're not marketing a product. We are trying to help people connect their story to the story of what God is doing for humanity in Jesus. And to do that effectively, it requires time, it requires listening, and oftentimes it requires relationship. And that means investment. That means that we have to become people that aren't just walking up and looking at people like they're a project. Oh, Here's another person that I can just preach, preach, preach at. No, no, no. We get to know people and we just love people by virtue of the fact that they're people and they're beautiful and they're created in the image of God and they have things that are of value to us. But all the while as we cultivate those friendships and relationships with non-Christians, we, out of love for them, look for opportunities if they present themselves to share the gospel because we want to see them not only thriving for their 30, 50, 70, 90 years on earth, we want to see them thriving for all of eternity. So let's bring this to a close. The kind of evangelism that Paul has in mind is bathed in prayer. It's clear and focused. It's wise and discerning. It's gracious and engaging. And it's winsome and tactful. The Apostle Peter has a similar vision for evangelism. We see it in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now we've covered a lot of ground here this morning. Prayer, pre-evangelism, and actually doing the work of evangelism. And so I'll end by just asking, what about you? 
What, what is the Lord showing you this morning? Are, are there things that God's revealing to you where he's saying, hey, this is an area that I want growth in. Maybe it's related to your prayer life. Maybe it's related to the way that you share your faith or don't ever share your faith. Well, family, the question becomes, if, if the Lord's speaking to us and revealing things to us, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to say, that was cool. What's for lunch? And just move on with our day. Are we going to commit these things to prayer and say, Lord, I want to be the person you've created me to be. I want to be obedient to you. Now help me grow in these areas and push into this space and become a person of prayer and a person who shares my faith. We can never be satisfied with having our own sins forgiven and our own guilt and shame removed. Love compels us to take that blessing outward. Amen? Amen.